Welcome to Do Justice. I'm your host, Steve Allred. What's it like to be a Muslim in America? What do Muslims believe, anyway? And what civil rights challenges do they face? So before I start, um, you know, I just want to give a little disclaimer. Um, You know, I'm an attorney at a civil rights organization, and so there's a little bit of tension for me to kind of represent all Muslims. Mm -hmm. Um, So the answers uh, with respect to religion, you know, I'll give as my own answers, Um, you know, so so no one gets (laughs) upset at me for saying something that they don't necessarily agree with. That was the voice of Zaina Galawanji, my guest today. The civil rights organization she spoke of is the Council on American-Islamic Relations in Washington, D.C., otherwise known as CARE, a Muslim civil rights organization where she's an attorney. Now, if you're an American white Anglo-Saxon Protestant like I am, you probably grew up knowing very little about Islam. I recently read a couple of good books on the topic. The first was Karen Armstrong's Short History of Islam, and the other was Reza Aslan's book, No God But God the origins, evolution, and future of Islam. But today we talk to a real, live American Muslim, and we hear her perspective on Islam and Muslim civil rights. We don't get into a detailed history of Islam, we just don't have the time. So you need to read some books on that topic if you want to go deeper. But my guest today will summarize the Islamic faith from her perspective and give us a brief overview of the different branches of Islam. As an American Muslim herself and a practicing civil rights attorney, Ms. Galawanji is particularly qualified to speak to the questions that we asked at the beginning of today's episode. I begin our conversation by asking Ms. Galawanji to summarize the fundamental tenets of Islam for us. You know, to sum up the Islamic faith, um, just in the most basic sense, um, Islam is made up of the five pillars of Islam. So those five pillars are prayer, fasting, giving charity, performing pilgrimage. Um, And the last one is the declaration of faith or the shahada. And the declaration of faith is essentially what makes up a Muslim. It's a declaration that there is no God but God and that Muhammad um, is his messenger. I think a lot of Westerners view Islam as kind of being a monolithic faith, like all the Mus- all Muslims think alike about everything, and that there's just one massive group of uh, Muslims around the world that completely agree on everything. When in fact, uh, is it true that there are different, um, almost like denominations within Islam, as there are like within Christianity, for example? Or how would you describe that, like the different views within the Islamic faith? So within um, the faith, and what's most commonly understood is that um, you have Shia Muslims and you have Sunni Muslims. Um, And so, you know, as a non-Muslim walking into a mosque, you wouldn't be able to tell whether you've walked into a Sunni or Shia mosque. Those differences aren't very apparent. Um, You know, all Muslims pray five times a day. We all read the Quran. We all have the same basic system of law. We fast together. We go to the pilgrimage together. Um, the main difference between the Sunni and the Shia, um, it's a historical difference over the political and religious succession of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so there's a difference between, you know, it, it's a difference of whom uh, succeeded the Prophet after he passed. Um, so this kind of translates into a difference in theology over what constitutes proper authority. Um, you know, but Sunni is just a kind of 
you know, make it a little bit more basic. Sunnis are very close to Protestants, um, so they're more egalitarian. There's less emphasis on hierarchy, mm-hmm. whereas Shia Muslims have more of a rigid hierarchy or a clerical system. Um, a lot of people believe uh, or understand um, there to be a third sect, which is Sufi Muslims. Um, that's actually not true. Um, Sufis are not another sect. You actually have Sufis that are Sunni and you have Sufis that are Shia. Mm. Um, Sufis, it, it's a kind of pious practice that is similar to monkhood. So even though most uh, Islamic texts reject the idea of monkhood, Sufis are the closest things we have to mosques in Islam. And what Sufis focus on, they focus on the heart, purifying the heart. It's about sincere worship to God. So it's kind of a way of practicing. Um, but even if you want to get more technical, you know, within Sunnis, you've got different schools of thought. Um, and then in Islam, as, the, as in the religion as a whole, um, a lot of Muslims don't think the same way. You know, it's very difficult to find two Muslims that think exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, you know, want to kind of uh, emphasize that point as well. Sure. And there's not like a, a big organization um, somewhere in the world that all Muslims report to, so to speak, right? Like you have the Catholics, right. for example, who have the Pope and everybody, you know. But Muslims don't really have that, right? It's a lot more kind of, uh, you know, each Muslim for himself in a way, although you have your local mosques and stuff. Am I, is that correct? Right, absolutely. I mean, you've got universities, um, you know, like Azhar in, in Egypt that'll kind of teach religion. And, um, you know, we've got our mosques. We have various religious leaders all over the world, but mm-hmm. we don't really, we don't all follow the same person. And um, the only thing that we all adhere to together is the Quran and, you know, a lot of the teachings of the prophet. Um, but we don't have, you know, like a, um, we don't have like a Pope <laughs> or anything mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. What are, what are some beliefs that you would say Muslims and Christians uh, share? So Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, they all come from kind of the same um, Abrahamic tradition. Mm -hmm. So Muslims, like Christians, believe in one God. Um, You know, we share a number of individuals within our history that we believe in, Jesus, Mary, Abraham, and so many others. Mm -hmm. We believe that there's a heaven and hell. You know, we believe that people who perform good deeds will go to heaven. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of the the smaller beliefs of, you know, do good onto your neighbor, um, don't steal, don't lie, um, don't be excessive in your spending or in your eating habits. You know, those are all um, kind of similarities that we share with Christians. Mm -hmm. That's neat. So Mm -hmm. kind of back to this idea that, you know, Muslims are monolithic, every every Muslim – it kind of thinks like every other Muslim, which isn't really true. Um, it seems like there is an expectation among at least some Americans, unfortunately, uh, that whenever you know some sort of a terrorist attack occurs, let's say, and and there's somebody who might profess to be a Muslim who was involved in that um, that terrorist attack, that that all other Muslims are supposed to you know, somehow shoulder the blame for that and, and, you know, publicly apologize for the actions of that one person or that, you know, group that did this, this terrible thing, um, which, you know, we don't have that same expectation for, 
you know, let's say Christians really, right? If, if there's a white supremacist guy who goes into the black church in South Carolina and says, I'm a Christian and he kills a bunch of other Christians, you know, we don't expect every Christian to say, you know, this was bad. We just all kind of realized, yeah, that was bad, you know? So what, how would you respond to that, um, that expectation among some people, at least that, you know, every Muslim needs to apologize every time there's some sort of a terrorist attack. Yeah. So I, so when people are asking Muslims to apologize, you're, they're asking 1.8 billion people in the world to apologize for the act of a single human being. So Mm -hmm. that there's 1.8 billion Muslims, you know, imagine asking, all of the Christians in the United States to apologize, you know, anytime a white supremacist does something mm-hmm. and you're going to be met with a lot of anger, a lot of confusion. Why do we have to apologize? We had nothing to do with this. Right. And so Muslims often feel the same way. And um, what people also feel to understand is when an act of terror is committed on behalf of Muslims, Muslims, also often end up being victims too. Um, you know, I wore the, the hijab or, you know, the Islamic head covering for a big, for, a, for many years. And anytime something like that happened and I'd leave my house, you know, to go to school or go to work, I would always be so nervous. What if someone that doesn't like Muslims heard about what happened? And what if I happened to cross their path that day? Mm -hmm. And what if they take their anger out on me and I had nothing to do with it? So the moment something bad happens and the media says, oh, look what Muslims did, you know, we end up being the victims as well. And and that's very, it's frustrating, it's it's scary, it's unfair. No, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Um, And I think any logical person you know, would agree with that. Um, what, let me ask you this. You, you, you're not speaking, I, I realize again, for, for all Muslims everywhere, but from your own perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and this might be a rhetorical question for you, but does Islam condone terrorism? I think a lot of, you know, Americans have this view that somehow it's part of the religion, you know, jihad or whatever that means. And what does that mean to you, like jihad? And how would you, you know, answer that question? So the most common um, understood term for jihad in the Muslim faith is a struggle. And, and it's commonly understood as the struggle against oneself, you know? So for example, um, you know, I struggle with fasting. I have such a hard time staying away from coffee during the month of Ramadan. Like I, as an attorney cannot function without coffee. And so my jihad during the month of Ramadan is, is to fast. It's I'm struggling against myself to fast and I'm struggling to stay away from coffee, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then, and with regards to your, your question about whether Islam condones terrorism, you know, that's obviously not true. And we know this to, to not be true because in Islam, we have a saying, um, and it's that the killing, if you kill one human being, it's as if you killed all of humanity. Um, so Islam obviously does not condone terrorism in, in any way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, so I'm a Christian. I read the Bible and I have, I know of other Christians who have taken passages out of the Bible I believe they've been taken out of context and they've used those passages to justify violence in the name of God, you know, whether it be in history or even today. Um, Is that what's going on with like these terrorists who say, hey, we're Muslim and we're justifying this based on what you would 
view as an incorrect reading of like the Quran or, or why are they doing these things from your perspective? Um, so what this is, is you're getting individuals who, um, are using the Quran to justify their own, um, to, to justify getting the things that they want, you know? Mm -hmm. So in a time of political conflict, you're going to get people who, for example, want to overthrow a government and they're going to use the Quran and they're going to take, um, you know, things out of context and, 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 twist words to control the masses to try to kind of achieve what they want politically you know so i mean if you take the bible if you take the torah if you take the quran you can open up to any page and you can take a sentence out of an entire paragraph that you know talks about killing take out all the words that come before and after and twist that in a way to justify what you're doing mm -hmm. um you know it's something that we can do with anything and and, um, yeah, I mean, you do see people trying to use that to, um, you know, achieve what they want. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. And let me ask you, were you living in America around the time of the, uh, the September 11 terrorist attacks? Yeah. So I actually, um, grew up in Michigan. I was in third grade when nine 11 happened. Okay. So what was it like, mm -hmm. you know, for you as a, as an American Muslim, uh, and you were pretty young at that time, but you you know what the aftermath of that has been like in the years since. What's it been like uh, living in America after 9-11 happened? So, um, you know, during 9-11, um, you know, I mentioned I was in third grade. I was actually in Islamic school. And the day that 9-11 happened, you know, my school um, shut down and sent everybody home. A lot of us were nervous that our school was going to be targeted because uh, we happened to be Muslim. And, you know, that day I remember uh, my mom describing that her friends were afraid to leave their homes. They were, you know, the headscarf and they didn't want to be targeted. And, and, you know, fast forward, you know, I was young at the time. Um, and so it's hard for me to just describe the differences, you know, what was life like before 9-11 and what was it like after. But sure. I can tell you that a lot of what I see as an attorney, I see the effects of 9-11 on our community. You know, I see it in things like the Muslim ban, um, in our watchlisting policies, surveillance, counterviolence, extremism programs. Um, those, all these policies, um, have come out, you know, after 9-11 and in response to 9-11, and they disproportionately target the Muslim community. What are some things that have happened in America uh, targeting Muslims, hate crimes, um, that you can tell us about, just to kind of give our listeners a perspective on what it's like, you know, to, to identify with the Muslim faith in America uh, since 9-11? So I, the, you know, the biggest story that, you know, sticks in my mind is the story of there are three um, young Muslim Americans. They were about college age. They were living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They were actually gunned down by their neighbor, um, you know, who their neighbor, they had had disputes with their neighbor. Their neighbor um, disliked them, showed, you know, some Islamophobic sentiment, just really did not like Muslims. And, and he came to their home went inside their home and killed all three of them. Yeah, um, and that, that was very terrifying. You know, uh, I was in college when that happened and that was like those students, they looked a lot like me. They looked a lot like 
all the other students that I attended university with, you know, I went to university in Dearborn and I was nervous. I was like, if that can happen to them, that can happen to me. It can happen to all of my classmates. You know, it's, it's terrifying. And that just happened, what, three or four years ago, right? Because I remember reading about that. Yeah. Wow. Um, What are statistics on hate crimes against Muslims in America? Let's say like for this past calendar year um, or, you know, 2019, do we know, you know, like numbers about how many are targeted per year and what those crimes are like and who's doing them and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So if you actually go, um, we have a website called Islamophobia.org where we publish all of our statistics and we have published anti-Muslim um, bias incidents from 2014 to t- 2019. And so we have recorded, you know, over 10,000 incidents within that five-year time span. And if you actually scroll down that page, um, we have a report ca- called Targeted where we break down the numbers. Um, so I don't have the numbers um, for 2019 yet. Um, but if you go to that report, we have um, the breakdown from 2015 to 2017. And you can see that bias um, crimes against Muslims are actually on the rise. And so we see that in 2015, um, the number of anti-Muslim bias incidents was about 1,400. And then in 2017, it increased to about 2,500. Um and and I just want to uh, kind of give a note about the way that we um, report our statistics because I think it's very important to understanding the statistics that we publish. So we don't actually categorize hate crimes the way that the FBI does. Um, the FBI's definition of a hate crime essentially means that it needs to have been prosecuted as a hate crime. Okay. What we do is we take bias incidents and alleged hate crimes and we keep track of those. Um, and we, um, so basically acts that involve intimidation, harassment, physical assault, or property damage, um, based on, you know, bias or perceived bias, we, um, kind of aggregate those. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what we have is actually a voluntary reporting system. So we use our nationwide network of 33 chapters who input every case, all of the details, um, And we also use um, a robust media monitoring service that picks up on cases that make the media. So anytime there's news of an anti-Muslim incident, you know, we catch wind of it. We do our inventory. We cross check with our with our reports. And that gives us an accurate estimate of recoverable data. Um, But we also know that that means that our numbers are much lower than they should be because it's based on this voluntary reporting mechanism and based on the stories that make the media. Sure. And so what are some specific, uh, you know, just give us a couple of examples of what these kinds of um, incidents are, are like. Are we talking about an employment or housing accommodation type uh, situations or um, at a restaurant where they're being refused service? Or what, what kinds of bias incidents, you know, can you give us an example of a couple of them? Mm-hmm. So um, the five most frequent types of anti-Muslim bias incidents are harassment, abuses by CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, mm-hmm. hate crimes, FBI abuses, and employment discrimination. Um, so I deal a lot with, you know, FBI cases and employment discrimination. You know, your FBI abuses look something like an FBI agent is trying to gather information about the Muslim community go to the mosque, jot down some names of some of the Muslims there, and then start harassing, you know, some Muslim about sitting down for an interview, 
oh, it'll only take five minutes. I just want to ask you about some people that you may or may not know. Um, and, and it turns into kind of a, a fishing expedition to gather information about the Muslim community to try to, um, you know, put together some type of investigation. And, and it just results in Muslims being harassed. I had actually a Muslim woman who approached me, um, you know, when I was doing um, uh, a workshop, uh, a workshop, and she actually, she was in tears. And she had told me that the FBI agent was harassing her. He was calling her. He was texting her. He was telling her that her job would be on the line unless she sat down with him to share information about some people that she knew maybe 10 years ago, but didn't recently have contact with. And, and she was pregnant as well. And, and mm. she was, she was stressed. She was upset. She was in tears. She was afraid that her life was over because this FBI agent was harassing her. Um, and unfortunately it's very common, you know, we get these types of cases, um, you know, every single week. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so you mentioned, earlier when you're talking about the statistics that are available on your website, on Kara's website, um, that these harassing incidents and so on and so forth have increased uh, mm-hmm. after, or I think you said in 2017 or 2016. What do you think has led to that increase? Um, I, you know, and, and I hate, I hate talking about this, but you know, maybe I should be talking about it a little bit more, but the rhetoric that we see from politicians, that we see from our executive branch, that we mm-hmm. see um, from local politicians, you know, it's it's absolutely unacceptable that you have individuals who are spouting hatred towards groups of people and, and people who have nothing to do with anything, who have never done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that translating into norm, you know, normal people, non-politicians are seeing, oh, look, these people are in office and they're saying this against these people. They're saying these people are bad. It must be true. And so that's going to justify however I speak towards these people, however I act towards them. Mm. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's a really big part of why we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, hate crimes recently. Yeah. What are some current challenges beyond that, that um, Muslims face uh, in America, as well as internationally, you know, how would you characterize the challenges faced by Muslims around the world right now? Because not just here in America, but elsewhere, um, Muslims are facing challenges. I know that the, um, is it in um, Myanmar, where mm-hmm. uh, large groups of, of Muslims are being persecuted, right? Or is it China as well, I think? I mean, what are some of the challenges faced around the world uh, by Muslims? Yeah, so we know that China has set up um, concentration camps where they've detained um, large populations of Muslims where they're, you know, submitting them to brainwashing to get them to abandon their faith. We've seen reports come out about this. We've seen horrifying reports as well about Muslims being abused in China, Muslims being raped, um, you know, Muslims Mm -hmm. being forced to give up organs. The, The reporting is so traumatizing that's coming out of China. Um, And then in places like India, where we see hate crimes against Muslims have increased. Um, You know, we see Muslim refugees fleeing war-torn countries, and we have European nations that are refusing to accept them, leaving them in limbo in places like Greece and Turkey and Jordan. 
Um, you know, so Muslims all over the country are facing, or all over the world are facing um, persecution, unfortunately. Mm. Why are you, as a Muslim American, um, glad to be an American? You know, just, just for our listeners to hear, I think sometimes people say, oh, Muslims aren't patriotic or whatever. And I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us why you're, I mean, you grew up here, right? Did, were you, because yeah. you, okay. So tell us, you know, why are you, uh, you know, what, what makes you as an American Muslim, you know, are, why are you happy to be in this country? So, you know, I'm an attorney and so um, the the biggest thing that I'm grateful for is that we have or at least we try our best to have as much accountability as possible. Mm-hmm. If someone commits a crime against me because I'm Muslim, I know that I can report it to organizations like CARE, and I know that I can have an attorney take action on my behalf, and I can hold people accountable. Um, you know, there are countries where, unfortunately, attorneys, um, you know, are persecuted. You know, in places like Syria, attorneys are unable to speak out against human rights abuses for fear of being jailed themselves and killed. Um, and so that's something that I really appreciate is this um, system that we have, the justice system going on in this country. And, and you know, while it definitely can be improved, I'm grateful that we at least have something where we are able to hold people accountable. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And as a fellow attorney, um, you know, our, our justice system is imperfect, but it's, um, it's better than a lot of places. So I'm, I'm thankful for that as well. Well, let's just, um, let's talk for a moment here about CARE and, and the work that CARE does. Um, can you share with us some of the, the legal and legislative victories, perhaps, that you or the organization has been involved with, and also some of the goals that CARE has uh, for the future, maybe some legislation you guys are, are promoting to help, um, you know, make a better uh, workplace or, 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 you know, prohibit harassment or whatever it might be. Can you share some of those, those things with us? Yeah. So, um, actually our biggest victory, um, this year was that we actually had a federal, um, judge rule, um, that, you know, the, the FBI's, um, terror watch list, which has, more than a million people who are alleged to be, you know, known or suspected terrorists. Um, he declared that that violated the Constitution hmm. um, and and violated the rights of those citizens. And so, just to give some background, so you know, the watch list um, is kind of this this big mysterious list that has so many names of all of these Muslim Americans, and and you have people um, on this list who are being put on this list without being told beforehand, hey, we're putting your name on this watch list, and this watch list is having horrible consequences for all the Muslims that are on it. So, you know, you'll most commonly see the consequences in an airport when a Muslim American is trying to print out their boarding pass. All of a sudden, it won't print out. They can't check in online. They've got to go to the airport kiosk where after getting clearance from the Department of Homeland Security, they can finally, you know, print out that boarding pass. It has four S's on it, indicating that a person has been designated as a known or suspected terrorist. They're on the selectee list, and that's kind of the criteria for being on the selectee list is that you're known or suspected terrorist. Mm. And that definition is very broad. Um, and, you know, so people are having issues at TSA where they're being 
searched extra. They're being um, interrogated by FBI agents and CBP officers at the airport. They're being subjected to random bank account closures, immigration delays, random and frequent traffic stops. Like the list goes on of how the watch list is impacting Muslims. And the criteria for placing people on it is so broad. And once you're on the watch list, you can't really be removed. It's going to affect you your whole life. Um, you know, so the judge ruled that that was unconstitutional. He ruled um, that the mechanism for resolving those issues um, was not adequate. So that's the DHS trip. Um, it's DHS's um, investigative mechanism for if I've been placed on the watch list, I will file this application with DHS. They will conduct an investigation. And hopefully when they realize I'm not a known or suspected terrorist, they'll remove my name. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, the trip process hasn't been resolving our clients' issues. They come back with a letter saying we can't confirm nor deny that you've been placed on a watch list. But rest assured, if you have and if it was a mistake, we've remedied the issue. And we're finding that most of our clients, their issues aren't actually remedied after filing DHS trip. Um, and so that was a huge victory this you know, lawsuit was years in the making. And um, right now we're at the point where we've, uh, the judge has asked us to submit um, remedies um, to kind of, uh, kind of figure out how to adjust this whole watch list process. And so we've submitted a brief, the government has submitted a brief um, and, you know, that argument is coming up. So we're very excited for that. We're excited for the judge's decision. And, and we're hoping that we can get similar judgments on the rest of our lawsuits across the country, also challenging the watch list. So that was our biggest victory this year. I've heard horror stories about that watch list. And there's great articles out there online that people can read if they Google that to just hear what it's like. I mean, it's just a terrible thing uh, to be on. And, and like you said, it's it follows you around for the rest of your life. There's really no way to get off of it. And you don't know what the criteria is necessarily. So, you know, how do you change what you're doing if you don't know uh, how you got on or how to get off, right? Um, right. That's a great victory. Um, and, and I was just looking that up here, and you can read a good article about that. It looks like on the Washington Post they had that. Uh, they talked about that judge's decision. Well, Let's wrap it up here, and I want to ask you this. This is kind of more of, you know, probably from your personal perspective again. Um, you know, you're an attorney. You work with an organization that advocates for civil rights for, for Muslims as, as well. I think your website even says that you guys don't just represent Muslims. You'll represent even non-Muslims in, in some civil rights cases as well, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and that's admirable. So beyond all of that, you know, beyond the, the, the court battles and the legislation, how can how do you think we as people living in the United States, regardless of our faith, um, how can we learn to get along and also to respect the rights of others to live and believe as they wish? What are your thoughts on that? I am of like this um, the perspective that everybody is inherently good <laughs> and that there are kind of, you know, factors that push people to not be good. So for example, you know, we have a report published on our website, um, about how the Islamophobia industry is being funded by all these corporations, all these, um, politicians. And I don't think, it, you know, as much as, People should be taking individual responsibility. I think it's also up to us to hold politicians and companies and huge corporations accountable mm -hmm. for the money that they're using to fund 
Um, you know, all of these initiatives that target certain groups of people by pushing policies that target certain groups of people. Um, you know, I, I'd love to say, you know, we should be understanding of each other and we should be nice to people that we see in the street and, you know, smile at each, at each other and understand that we all have different beliefs and be kind, but we cannot underestimate the work that these huge corporations, that politicians, that people in power are doing to target certain groups of people. And I, I really think that, you know, until we get to the root of that issue, we're not going to be able um, to kind of, it's, it's, it's just, we're not going to be able to resolve hatred on a smaller level until we, until we address hatred at the larger scale. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about like misinformation, that's being promoted, uh, you know, from these corporations or politicians, um, about Muslims basically saying, you know, uh, false things about, about folks. And that's just leading other people to, to hate basically. Is that what you're saying? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if my neighbor is, does not like Muslims and it's, is treating me badly, you know, I'm going to wonder what types of information are they receiving? Who should be held accountable for sharing that information? I can, as much as I want, try to make peace with my neighbor and, and give my neighbor flowers and give them chocolates and invite them over for coffee. But you really have to address the root of the issue. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for talking with us today. And uh, I appreciate the work you're doing there at the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now.